So several people, um, teachers and meditators, have asked me to give a talk on delusion because I'm very well known for it. The way somebody phrased it was, could you give your deluded talk? And I said, well, it's not a deluded talk. It's a delusion talk. And that's a very big difference. So I will talk about it tonight, that quality of mind delusion, um, hopefully not in too deluded a way. And uh, also something about the overview of the Buddhist personality types. As you know, the three main hindrances or the three root defilements that cause so much suffering in our lives are grasping, aversion, and delusion. And in some funny way, I I often think these days of these three tendencies or these three qualities of mind as being qualities of misplaced faith or, or misplaced devotion and trust. It's almost as though when we're lost in one of these three tendencies, we're offering our trust to the wrong things and very likely in the wrong ways as well. So the word that is usually translated as faith or trust in Pali is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A, and it means to place the heart upon, to offer one's heart. So when we are lost in one of these three states, we are placing our hearts upon something, an object, an experience, a way of being, permanence, substantiality, something that is somehow living at a right angle to how things are, living at an oblique angle to how things are, rather than in harmony with how things actually are. That's why it's painful because there's some distortion there. So it's almost as though in greed or grasping, as we know, we are placing our hearts upon the possibility of permanence. We're somehow defying the law of change, of constant change. And when we place our hearts upon aversion, that's anger or fear, we are counting on being able to separate, to control, to sever a relationship with that which is unpleasant. And in delusion, we are placing our hearts upon not noticing, being in a fog, being in some state of disconnection, of of being unaware of what is, and hoping to, in a way, almost like take refuge in that, in that fog, in that numbness. And while we are all experiencing very often all three of these in various combinations and permutations, it's also taught that sometimes one or another of these is is so strong in one as compared to the other two that it's almost like our personality is somehow constellated around that tendency. And here comes the, the theory of personality types. It's not that one would experience only greed in a lifetime or, or only anger, but Uh, really that the tendency becomes something very pronounced in one's being. And when we talk about a personality type, it doesn't mean, say, if you're a greedy type, that you're a greedy person, a greedy, selfish, terrible person. It means that that kind of liking, that wanting to hold on to pleasure, begins to manifest in a lot of different ways. So they say, for example, that a greedy type of person will walk into a room and notice what they like. Oh, what a beautiful shawl, and 
isn't that paneling really interesting? And wow, what an exit sign. That's really great. A greedy type of person will will have their attention just kind of naturally go toward that which is pleasing. Sometimes to the very uh, clear exclusion of that which is displeasing, where they tend to overlook that which is difficult and just go for that which is kind of nice. I was talking to a friend the other day who um, lives in an East Coast city, and I was complaining about how early it is now that that darkness comes. And she said to me, oh, you know, I, I think it's so great kind of like to, to leave work and it's already dark. It's so comforting. It's like being, being sheltered in the dark. And I thought, greedy type. <laughs> <laughs> or Joseph is a classic greedy type, you know, and, and a self-confessed one, so I'm not kind of telling tales out of school. And uh, I often see it in his conversation, wanting to see the best in a situation. Um, I once said to him, several years ago, I said to him, Joseph, because we both um, belong to the same airline's frequent flyer club, and of course, he's so tall that um, using upgrades for flights, for long flights, is something that really affects his, his comfort considerably. So I said, Joseph, what are you going to do if, if United Airlines goes bankrupt before you could use all your frequent flyer miles? And he said, it's not going to happen. And I walked away, and then I thought, how does he know it's not going to happen? <laughs> no, it's not going to happen. It's all going to be fine. So I often describe greedy types as people who, when you're sitting in a meeting and some dilemma or obstacle or challenge is brought up, they'll say, it's all going to work out. And often you are sitting there thinking, how? How's it all going to work out? But one's mind just in that state just likes to go toward that which is nice, that which is good, that which is pleasing. And we all do that when we are in that mode. An angry type is quite different. They're said to be the kind of person who will walk into a room and notice what they don't like. A carpet. <laughs> How awful. And the linoleum. Oh, my God. Or, you know, gee, that person could have tried harder, couldn't they? You know, and, and what's that about? And It's just where their eye alights. It's what they see. And so I often liken people to that, like that, to sitting in a meeting and some possibility, some opportunity is brought up, and this person will say, it's not going to work. And often you're left sitting there thinking, why not? Why can't it work? But it's just their kind of almost reflexive response. Too much problem, you know, too much effort, it's not going to work. And we all know people, I think, who who constellate in that way. They see what's wrong. They see what's troubling. And there's, there's great strength in that as well. Often these are the very people who are willing to name that which is wrong or troubling, while everyone else in the room is involved in a kind of studied nonchalance <laughs> or denial, not being willing to admit, yeah, this is really a problem. Let's take a look at this. And so... Um, there's that aspect as well, you know, almost a kind of courage often or fearlessness that comes with that, that tendency to be willing to name that which is difficult or that which is problematic. And then there is the deluded type who lives, tends to live more in that fog and so sometimes it is said that if this is your primary tendency, you'll walk into a room and you won't really notice anything until somebody else points it out. And then you go, yeah, carpeting, wow, that's interesting. Or lighting, oh yeah. 
And so these might be likened to the kinds of people who sit in a meeting and just kind of sit there in, in some state of confusion or uncertainty until other things are pointed out more clearly. And then there can be a, a more ready analysis or, or understanding, but perhaps not right at the beginning. So I want to um, go into more detail about all three, and certainly about the third. Now they say in the Visuddhimagga, or the Path of Purification, which is an ancient commentarial text, that you can discern this type of person, again, if one of the three is very, very strong, uh, which they may not be. There may be kind of a nice mixture of all three in one's life. But if one is stronger than the others, they say. You can discern the type of person by the posture. When one of greedy temperament is walking in their usual manner, they walk carefully, put their foot down slowly, put it down evenly, lift it up evenly, and their step is springy. One of angry temperament walks as though they were digging with the points of their feet, put their foot down quickly, lift it up quickly, and their step is dragged along. One of deluded temperament walks with a perplexed gait, puts their foot down hesitantly, lifts it up hesitantly, and their step is pressed down suddenly. The stance of one of greedy temperament is confident and graceful. That of one of angry temperament is rigid. That of one of deluded temperament is muddled. When they sit or they lie down to go to sleep, One of greedy temperament spreads their bed unhurriedly, lies down slowly, composing their limbs, and they sleep in a confident manner. When woken, instead of getting up quickly, they give their answers slowly, as though doubtful. One of angry temperament spreads their bed hastily anyhow. With their body flung down, they sleep with a scowl. (laughs) When woken, they get up quickly and answer as though annoyed. One of deluded temperament spreads their bed all awry and sleeps mostly face downward with their bodies sprawling. When woken, they get up slowly saying, huh? (laughs) Also in action, say in sweeping a sand path. One of greedy temperament grasps the broom well and they sweep cleanly and eagerly without hurrying or scattering the sand as if they were strewing flowers. One of angry temperament grasps the broom tightly, and they sweep uncleanly and unevenly with a harsh noise, hurriedly throwing up the sand on each side. One of deluded temperament grasps the broom loosely, and they sweep not cleanly or evenly, mixing the sand up and turning it over. When one of greedy temperament sees even a slightly pleasing visible object, they look long as if surprised. They seize on trivial virtues, discount genuine faults, and when departing, they do so with regret, as if unwilling to leave. When one of angry temperament sees even a slightly unpleasing visible object, they avoid looking long as if they were tired. They pick out trivial faults, discount genuine virtues, and when departing, they do so without regret, as if anxious to leave. When one of deluded temperament sees any sort of visible object, they copy what others do. (laughs) If they hear others criticizing, they criticize. If they hear others praising, they praise. But actually, they feel equanimity in themselves, the equanimity of unknowing. (laughs) And of course, we all go through times of of grasping where we just want to hold on to that which is pleasing. We don't want a panoramic view by any means. We all go through times of great aversion where we are resentful of the many things that, that come our way. And we certainly all go through times of delusion when we are disconnected in some profound way. This is a quotation from a poem by Pablo Neruda. The poem is entitled, Flies enter a closed mouth, in which he says, 
When did smoke learn how to fly? When do roots talk with each other? How do stars get their order? Why is the scorpion venomous and the elephant benign? What are the tortoise's thoughts? To which point do the shadows withdraw? What is the song of the rain's repetitions? Where do birds go to die, and why are leaves green? What we know comes to so little, what we presume is so much. In some way, we could sense that delusion is a state of not realizing what it is that we actually do know, what reali- not realizing what it is that we don't know, and not knowing how to ask the questions. In some way, we don't have the energy at that time to ask the questions. We don't have the the spark or the inspiration. Delusion is failing to see things as they actually are. In Pali, the word is moha, M-O-H-A, which means to be stupefied. We experience delusion when it's strong in the mind as confusion, as bewilderment, as dullness, as helplessness. It's a state of being ignorant of essentially what is happening. It's that state of being stupefied, confused, bewildered. I think I used this example before in this course, you know, when you're driving down a road and suddenly you think, where am I? Am I still on Route 202? Did I turn onto 122? Where am I? It's that moment. Where am I? We feel disconnected. We feel uncertain. That's delusion. And either we enjoy that in some way, we find some relief in that. It's like cloaking yourself or cocooning yourself in this, in this net of numbness to not know, to not be aware, to not be so sensitive. Or we don't like it. And then comes the state where we will grab onto anything that will make us feel more certain or more secure. So that is likened to being out in a storm in the wilderness and finding something that we think will provide some shelter, some safety for us. If we see that while we're out there exposed to the elements and in the howling wind, we will cling to it. We will grab it tenaciously and rigidly. So that is why in the Buddhist teaching, delusion is said to be the root of fanaticism. We either like the feeling of not knowing and anchor ourselves in it, or we dislike it so much that we will grab anything for the feeling of really knowing with certainty. That's the the function of delusion. When delusion is very strong, there's a lot of restlessness and perplexity in our minds. We feel like we don't belong. We don't belong in our own bodies. We don't belong in our own minds. It's a sense of inhabiting something strange. And when delusion is strong, we don't tend to experience things in a more integrated way, but rather we tend to experience things as a puzzling array of pieces, and we can't quite get how they fit together, how they're connected. It's easier sometimes to choose delusion, to get lost in delusion, than to experience pain more directly. And it's actually easier sometimes to get lost in delusion than to experience pleasure more directly. When it seems like it would be a relief to not feel at all. Because of the force of delusion, we miss so much. You know that feeling when you walk into a room in your house, maybe, and then you think, why did I come in here? 
And you kind of wait for realization to strike. Why did I come in here? What was I looking for? What was I trying to get? And then you walk out again, and maybe an hour later you go, oh, yeah, right. That's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to get. It's the sense of disconnection. How did I get here? Why am I here? What's going on? I can't remember. Somebody once did a study um, where people were connected to all these machines that you know, measure everything one can measure. Um, this was a long time ago. Um, studies have gotten more sophisticated since then, but you know, they were measuring blood pressure and uh, temperature and things like that. And then I don't remember exactly what happened next. They were either shown images or told stories, something that would arouse a state of emotion. And it was interesting because some large percentage of the people hooked up to all these machines measuring everything said they didn't feel anything. But by all objective measures, they were sweating and their blood pressure was going up and their pulse was getting more rapid and something was going on, but they couldn't feel it. And interestingly enough, this was considered a study in empathy because one of the basis for sensing or intuiting the feelings of others, like the pain of someone if you tell them a lie or you steal something from them, is knowing your own pain. Now, what does it feel like if somebody lies to us? It doesn't feel very good. It's almost a kind of annihilation of our being. It feels quite terrible. But if we're not connected to that, we can't actually sense, oh, well, you know, that's what it might feel like for them if I told them a lie. And this, this sense of empathy of what it would feel like if someone were put in a hurtful position is considered the best basis for morality, for a very natural and unstudied kind of ethics. You know, you don't want to tell a lie to that person because you know what it feels like to be lied to. So it's very different than, than a kind of system of, of ethical behavior that one takes on, which also could be you know, important in some situations, but it's something much more profound um, and more natural in a way to not want to harm someone else because we know what it feels like to be harmed. And that way, we're not creating an object of the other. So it's very important to be able to connect to our own experience. That's the basis of empathy, which is the basis of a very natural morality. Even connecting to our own painful experience is very important in that way. But if we're lost in delusion, that's exactly what does not happen. We're not aware of what is going on very easily. The Thai monk Ajahn Chah talked about what it feels like to be in delusion when he said, when we have no real home, we are like aimless travelers out on the road, going this way for a while, then that way. Until we return to our real home, we feel ill at ease, whatever we're doing. And when we're really in delusion, we're so out of touch with our own experience that we're almost kind of waiting for someone else to show up to say, oh, that was very pleasant, wasn't it? And you think, yes, it was. Or that was very unpleasant. And we say, you're right, that was very unpleasant. So we don't have a lot of confidence in our own sense of things, a lot of um, trust or faith in our own vision of what is true. And the classic story I usually tell about that happened here uh, many years ago where um, I went one night to Cambridge, Massachusetts to give a talk 
And I came back pretty late at night, and just as I was turning my car off, I noticed, gee, there's not a lot of gas left. And then I, you know, just kind of let that go and went to bed, and I got up in the morning and walked here from my house next door and noticed that my car was gone. And I had this kind of confused thought, like, oh, well, maybe somebody knew somehow that there wasn't much gas in the car. And they went and took it to put some gas in it. So I walked into the staff dining room, and I came upon this person who was working here on staff, who if anyone had taken the car, it would have been him. So I said, have you seen my car? And he said, no. And I said, well, it's gone. And he said, it's gone. I said, yeah, I I just walked by and it was gone. And then came the killer moment. He looked at me and he said, are you sure? (laughs) And I thought, am I sure? (laughs) I walked by the place where I parked it, I think, and it didn't seem to be there. (laughs) Now, the car is a kind of a big thing. I think I would have noticed it if it was there. And I looked at him and I said, I think it's gone. And then somebody else came into the room, who's a self-confessed angry type, and I said, did you take my car? And she said rather abruptly, well, you know, you probably just lent it to somebody and you forgot who. And I thought, oh, I guess I lent it to somebody and I forgot who. (laughs) So I went upstairs and I was doing interviews and every once in a while I'd think, I wonder who I lent my car to that I can't remember who. And and then I came down for lunch and I I saw another one of my colleagues and I said, have you seen my car? And Joseph was walking by as I said that, and he said, oh, I know what happened to your car. And I said, what happened to my car? And he said, well, somebody called me really early in the morning, and and they needed a car, and I knew yours was the only car um, that was available. So I told them, you know, that they could take it, and I just haven't had a chance to tell you yet. I thought, and then he said, and I didn't think you'd notice it was gone. (laughs) But... (laughs) Aside from all the many interesting moments in that, the most interesting really was, was it gone? Which is a parallel moment to who did I lend my car to? Because somebody said I must have. So that's one of the consequences of delusion. It's being so cut off from our inner sense of what is true that we are constantly counting on someone else to define our world for us to tell us what we're feeling, to tell us what's going on, to tell us what must have happened. And it's, you know, clearly it's, it's a very painful consequence in its own way. The Buddha talked very pragmatically about how our minds work. And we can see that the, the nature of delusion is such that we miss what is really one of the greatest insights of all, which is that which is the path and that which is not the path. There are so many times we are just caught, we're just lost in a mind state, we're just um, sucked into some reaction. What we need more than anything is that kind of discernment, that which is the path and that which is not the path. What will bring us happiness? What will bring us suffering? What will cause suffering for others? To be able to have that kind of clarity. Even as we get lost, There's something very interesting I found um, in the teaching somewhere which talks about what it's like to cause harm. When we say something hurtful or we do something that causes harm, motivated by grasping or greed or motivated by anger, 
And we do that not knowing that that's unskillful, not knowing that we're causing harm. That's actually worse than doing it knowing that it's unskillful. And that is completely contradictory to how most of us have grown up with the thought or the, the admonition, well, you should have known better. And because you should have known better, it's even worse. Because here is the pragmatism of the Buddha. You know, say tremendous greed or grasping arises in our minds. We want to steal something. But we know that's harmful. We know the consequences of that will be a lot of suffering. So we want to do it, and then we pull back in wisdom or clarity. Then we want to do it again, and then we pull back. We come back to a greater sense of, of knowing and balance. And then we want to do it, and then we pull back. And then the wanting comes up, and it's so strong, we just do it. We go out and we steal that object. So from the point of view of the teaching, all those moments of pulling back, of seeing things more clearly, of understanding with a better perspective, they count too. It's not like they get destroyed or lost because in the end we get completely swept up in that mind state of desire and we go out and we do it. They also count each one of those moments. Instead of throwing ourselves into the grasping and completely abandoning ourselves into it without any kind of stepping back at all, we have those moments too. And so that is very important to know what is the path and what is not the path, even if it's momentary, to be able to reside in that, to know that's really going to hurt somebody. I had an experience, I usually use the example of, you know, sitting down and talking to somebody and knowing a really malicious piece of gossip about somebody else and feeling all that temptation to tell it. Well, I had an experience not too long ago where I was sitting down and talking to somebody and I knew a really malicious thing somebody else had said about them. And what was really creepy about this conversation is that the person I was talking to started praising this other person, not present. And I was sitting there with the knowledge of what this other person had said about them. And I could feel it come up, that desire to disclose it. But because I could feel it, and I knew better, (laughs) my mind went right away to, okay, what would the consequences be? of you know, really severing that relationship between these two people and hurting this person so much, and why should I be the vehicle you know, for uh, what this other person said? And um, It was so clear that there would be nothing but suffering to ensue from my blurting out that comment, and so I didn't. And it wasn't a question of moralizing or lecturing myself or, um, or anything, really. It was just knowing this is where that leads. You know, it's like knowing. This is where lying leads. This is where um, speaking harshly leads. We know that. We've done it so much. <laughs> We've seen the consequences of that. So having that kind of clarity, even as the temptation comes, and then we pull back, and the temptation comes, and we pull back, it's really very important to work with that quality of delusion, to know more clearly what is happening. In fact, each of those tendencies, the tendency toward grasping, the tendency toward aversion, the tendency toward delusion, is said to have within it a kind of jewel or treasure. When we take that tendency toward greed, toward wanting, toward wanting everything to be nice, pleasant, permanent, easy, and we transform it through the power of mindfulness, of awareness, which is like the alchemical agent, to be aware of the tendency without getting lost in it. When that happens, what we can do is almost like capture the energy of it, 
without being in the vortex of confusion and attachment and clinging that also comes. We can take that movement of the heart, which is to get close to experience, to be with things rather than to be withdrawn and kind of half-hearted and leave aside the grasping, the clinging, the fervent need for things not to change. And what happens, they say, is that that tendency toward grasping transmutes into faith. Faith not in the sense of a belief system and not in the sense of trying to imagine everything will be nice and everything will work out just the way we want it to work out, but faith in the sense of an open-hearted participation, a real love of life, a movement toward what is, which is one of the ways that faith can function when it's not like a dogmatic faith um, or a kind of attached faith, like everything is going to work out perfectly. But just the nature of faith is moving toward. When we have faith in something, then we are willing to engage, to participate, to be there, rather than be standing on the sidelines cynically looking at it from afar. When we have faith in a possibility for ourselves, then rather than deferring or holding something as an abstraction, we bring it to life. We try it. You know, we, we pursue it. We move from the sidelines right to the center of a sense of possibility. And that's what that grasping tendency becomes, is an ability to experience fully, not holding back, to take a risk, to try things. That's the grasping transmuted into the quality of faith. And the tendency toward aversion or anger is said to transmute to wisdom. Because there is something very powerful about that ability to cut through, to cut through surface appearances where maybe everyone else wants everything to be just so nice. And to be willing to say, you know, this isn't good. This is wrong. Or this needs to change, whatever it might be. To be able to cut through, to have that kind of penetrating intelligence, to cut through surface appearance, to cut through conventional agreement, to look the other way, whatever it might be. To be willing to go under the surface is part of that aversive tendency. To name that which is difficult, even if it makes you unpopular. All of that can have the nature of wisdom. Anger, of course, is not just that cutting through. It's also a tremendous burning, which is why in the Buddhist psychology they liken anger to the forest fire, which burns up its own support, leaves us devastated. And like a forest fire, it might leave us very far from where we want to be. It's that wild quality in anger that is not so helpful because it consumes us, it can destroy us. It can destroy that around us because there is actually a quality of delusion in the anger. We forget. We forget, say, we're angry at ourselves. We forget that we're not just the person who made that stupid mistake or said that stupid thing. We're more than that. We forget. You know, we're angry at somebody else and we forget that there were conditions leading up to their behavior or their action or that they are more than that harmful activity. We forget that change is possible. So our challenge in being mindful of the aversive tendency is, again, it's like to capture the energy, which can be so strong and so important, that says no, that draws boundaries, that names what's difficult, without getting lost in that forest fire. So then the anger can transmute into wisdom. And they say that delusion, that sense of confusion, can transform into a kind of equanimity. Not the equanimity of not knowing, 
but an equanimity that is based on more clear seeing. I'm told, by the way, that deluded types are very good people to travel with. So, for example, I went, to, I went through China and Tibet some years ago with a friend of mine who is a greedy type. We would check into a hotel, and she would say to me, do you mind if I take that bed over there? And I said, no, that's fine. That's great. And maybe 15 minutes later, I'd say to her, why did you want that bed over there? And she'd, she'd just name it off. She said, well, the mattress isn't sagging, and the mosquito net doesn't have a hole in it, and I'm close to the light so I can control the light, and close to the window so I can control the window. It's like, I noticed nothing, not a thing. You know, so that kind of state of like, it's all okay with me, simply because we don't notice anything, can transform into, it's okay with me, even though I noticed all of those things as well. So they say that wise attention is the um, particular antidote to delusion to learn to connect, to know what we're feeling, to see what's in front of us, and to learn to trust our own perception rather than just relying on the views or the vision of another. Then what is that kind of fog of delusion becomes a much clearer sense of equanimity. And mindfulness is said to be the alchemical agent. When we are mindful of grasping, we can capture the energy of it. When we're mindful of it, it's not to destroy it and to make it go away or to hate ourselves for it or to flatten it out. It's to see it much more clearly. Both its immediate nature, this is what grasping feels like, this is what it does in our bodies, This is what it does to our mood. It's more ultimate nature. It's changing. It's insubstantial. It's not arising due to our control. It's unsatisfactory. So that there's almost a kind of transparency that comes to the grasping. And this is where it can transform. The energy can become that of faith. And the same with aversion. We see our own anger. We see our own fear. And if we see it, we will see into it on all those different levels. And we can use the energy of it. And with delusion, as we are mindful of it, it's like the clouds start to lift. And we realize that even though it has a kind of aura of promise, wouldn't it be nice just to sleep through this experience, that really it's not very pleasant to be in that kind of fog or or confusion. It's not very pleasant to have others so determine our sense of what's true or important or valuable. And so we learn how to really pay attention, to wake up to be there during all kinds of experiences. We also work in addition, if we choose to, in addition uh, to being mindful of the experience, we also work with kind of antidotes to bring balance to our tendencies. We practice generosity if our tendency is, is toward great grasping, We don't want to let go of anything. We want to keep things just the same and pleasant. Then we consciously make a practice of generosity, either material generosity or even just generosity of the spirit to let go of something. You know, we see some kind of obsessive thinking in our minds. We practice letting go. And we practice a kind of material generosity as well. Sometimes it's okay to let somebody step in front of you in the lunch line, you know, or uh, something you're really going for. You might step back. Let someone else get there first. 
or in, you know, not here so much, um, but, you know, in a situation in life, is very interesting sometimes to um, undertake almost disciplines of, of generosity. Like something that uh, we've often done here at different times, I've done it, you know, is to make a resolve that when something powerfully comes to mind that I want to give, you know, not just a passing thought and not a really unreasonable thought, like I'm going to give away the center or something like that. Um, But, uh, you know, something that's reasonable to give and the impulse to give comes up very strongly. Uh, Sometimes I've had the resolve, okay, I'm going to give that object, whatever it is, even if my next thought is one of fear. Like, oh no, I can't give that away. You know, I've had it for 15 years and I've never used it, but I might need it next week. Or, you know, oh no. Um, Just to see what happens in the relinquishment, in the act of giving. You know, things like that. To use generosity very consciously, not as a martyr, but to pay attention to all of one's reactions, to see the nature of grasping, to see what happens when we let go. Do we really regret it? Do we have joy in it? And with anger, too, we use the antidote of of loving kindness, of metta, which is considered the, the direct antidote for both anger and fear. To actively practice paying attention to ourselves in those ways, to see the good within ourselves. To practice remembering that universal wish to be happy, that our urge toward happiness is not something wrong or incorrect. We should be happy. We just very likely, in many circumstances, don't really know how to be. And so we care about ourselves just as we care about others. We practice loving kindness because you can almost feel the, the way it will counter the tendency toward fear, which closes us down, has us pull away, stop paying attention, withdraw interest. We practice loving kindness because it brings us back to be present in a situation, to be more open, to recognize on deeper levels what is actually going on. We use it as an antidote because it will replace the tendency towards such uh, tremendous and um, kind of compulsive anger or fear that we can be involved in. And we use a very precise kind of paying attention as an antidote for delusion you know, maybe this is why Saito Upandita worked with me as he did. Somebody asked me that question. If he was working with everyone in 1984, and, and as always, but in 1984 so uh, differently, so individually, why did he have you pay attention so carefully, drinking a cup of tea and uh, taking a shower and washing your face and taking off your shoes and looking at your watch and opening the door and all of that, and uh, when you know, one of you just asked me that, and I forgot, you know who, but I also couldn't think at the time. I thought I said I don't know, but it just occurred to me: <laughs> here you are, to be very carefully aware of very simple things will be the doorway to kind of strip those clouds of of delusion away. The manifestation of non-delusion is non-bewilderment, clear attention to see what is actually going on. To discover what we know, to discover what we don't know. To settle into an experience, not as we've been taught about it, not as we've been told it is or should be, but as we are actually experiencing it. Everything becomes different. We pay attention. We see things as they are. We have a kind of balance that comes 
not from living in that cloud, but from knowing very, very clearly, very deeply. This is how things are. They're coming and going. They're constantly passing. New things are arising. We pay very careful attention in that way. We see how little control we have over the particulars of our experience. Things come, things go. We make the fervent decision, you know, never to suffer again. But it happens when conditions come together, when things arise in a certain way. And we use that wisdom so that instead of that kind of puzzling array of pieces and things being all torn apart and, and not pulled together, we have a sense of coherence because we see how things are. And we know we don't need to react in the same old ways. So regardless of what we find as our predominant mode, if we find one as our predominant mode, or even if we find all three arising in some, some kind of combination, or as, as one person once put it, um, they said, I'm greed with delusion rising or something like that. <laughs> we can have a sense that these are really the, almost like imperson. It is like almost like an astrological thing or the Enneagram, which I've never figured out. Um, you know, it's conditions. It's not me. It's conditions coming together in a certain way. There's a certain impersonality to it. And no matter how strong or how intense or how frequent or how seemingly ceaseless one of these qualities is, if we can be mindful of it, we can transform it. And so we use what is arising in our practice. We use what we see rather than feeling victimized by it or um, in a way rather than taking it so personally to see it for the cluster of conditions that it really is. And no matter what it is we see, to work very ardently on being mindful of it, because that will be the transformation from these states of suffering into some very great treasures. So let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.